Hello and welcome to this podcast mini-series. It has been produced as part of the International Association for Suicide Prevention's 10th Asia-Pacific Conference, which was held in person and virtually from the Gold Coast in May 2022. I'm Dr Jaylee Skeen. I'm a long-time member of IASP and the Director of Every Mind, a leading institute in Australia dedicated to the prevention of mental ill health and the prevention of suicide. EveryMind was really pleased to partner with IASP as the communication sponsor for the conference and to also bring you this podcast series. It was particularly exciting to catch up with colleagues in person from within Australia and across the globe after we've all had such a challenging few years. In this podcast series, you will hear people talk about some of the key topics that were discussed at the Asia-Pacific Conference. This includes things like restricting access to means of suicide, suicide in defence and veterans communities, and workplace suicide prevention. Just a reminder for people that the content presented may cause some impacts for people. If you find the content distressing, please take a break and seek support. You can also find support via the Find a Helpline tool on the IASP website. Thank you so much for listening, and to learn more about EveryMind's work, please visit us at everymind.org.au or you can join us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at EveryMindAU. So welcome to this podcast. This podcast is part of the International Association of Suicide Prevention Asia Pacific Regional Conference Communications Package, which includes several podcast episodes covering suicide prevention in the workplace, pesticides and restricting means in suicide prevention, and military and veteran suicide prevention. And this podcast is sponsored by EveryMind, which is the IASP, Asia-Pacific Conference Communication Sponsor. The aim of this podcast is to focus on pesticides and means restrictions for suicide prevention by discussing relevant presentations and sections throughout the conference and having some more in-depth conversations around this hugely important issue of pesticide suicide. I'm Professor Shu Shen Zhang from National Taiwan University, the host of this podcast. I'm excited to have this opportunity to talk to two leading researchers and practitioners in the area of pesticide suicide and its prevention. And Dr. Lashmi Vijaya Kumar is a consultant psychiatrist based in Chennai, India. She is the founder of SNEHA, Shinha, a pioneering suicide prevention organization in India, and is the head of the Department of Psychiatry in the Voluntary Health Services, Chennai. She is also an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne and honorary Asian professor at the University of Griffiths, Australia. She is also on the World Health Organization's International Network for Suicide Research and Prevention. And Dr. Vijay Kumar has published studies of pesticide suicide prevention. Hi, uh, Lashmi. Thank you. And Professor Michael Edgerton is Professor of Clinical Toxicology at the University of Edinburgh. He has worked on pesticide suicides for more than 20 years, focusing in particular on Sri Lanka. His research has covered the natural history of pesticide poisoning, the medical treatment of poisoned patients, and strategies for prevention of deaths from pesticide suicides. He has published extensively on, on the subject, interacted with the United Nations to bring it to the forefront of global public health, and is the founder of Center for Pesticide Suicide Prevention at the University of Edinburgh. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shushan. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. 
Before I talk to Dr. Vijaya Kumar and Professor Edelton, I would like to very briefly introduce why pesticide suicide prevention is such a huge important issue for global health, a global suicide prevention. I will then briefly summarize the main findings from the relevant presentation at the conference. Pesticide injection is the is the leading method of suicide worldwide, accounting for 110,000 to 170,000 deaths a year worldwide. The burden of pesticide suicide is particularly high in some countries in the Asia, Pacific, and South Asian regions. Many self-poisonings using pesticides are impulsive acts and cause deaths due to the high toxicity of pesticides ingested. Regulating or banning highly hazardous pesticides or HHPs has the potential to save hundreds of thousands of lives. A better understanding of the impact of banning highly hazardous pesticides will provide a critical evidence base needed to inform local and global suicide prevention strategies. At this conference, there are a total of seven presentations focusing on pesticide suicides. Four of them are from the symposium six of the conference, entitled International Experiences of Pesticide Suicide Prevention, the Impact of Bans on Highly Hazardous Pesticides. And three are in the oral sections 12. The four presentations of the symposium examine the impact of recent pesticide bans in Karara, India, Taiwan, South Korea, and Malaysia. And the main findings are the bans on 14 highly hazardous pesticides in 2011 did not impact the yield of eight major crops in the state of Karara, India. And there was no evidence for change in crop yields after the pesticide bans. And banning paraquat, a highly toxic pesticide, was followed by a reduction in pesticide suicides in the first two years post-ban in Taiwan and the eight years post-ban periods in South Korea. The two analyses were based on national data, and both analyses showed no corresponding increase in suicide by other pesticides. In other words, there was no evidence of a shift from paraguay suicide to suicide by other pesticides. Paraguay poisoning has a much higher fatality rate than poisoning using other pesticides or substances. Even if there is a shift from paraguay to other pesticides for self-poisoning, the overall fatality will still drop. By contrast, data from two hospitals in Malaysia show no impact in the first two years after the paraguay ban in contrast to findings in, from Taiwan and South Korea. And the first presentation from the oil sections analyzed uh, suicide data from the state of Perak, Malaysia. The Parkwa ban did not appear to impact on um, Parkwa or pesticide-related suicides either. However, it showed uh, Parkwa injection was associated with some characteristics such as female gender, the presence of stress, and no history of suicide attempt, indicating that many of them could be impulsive acts. The other two presentations were from Sri Lanka. The first study analyzed data from a very large RCT of pesticide suicide prevention, and banning highly hazardous pesticides was followed by a significant reduction in suicide in Sri Lanka over the last two decades, while pesticide ingestion remained a leading method of suicide in the rural region, as shown in this study. A significant proportion of pesticides involve two specific organophosphates in, in sex exercise, including carbo 
sulfen and profenophos, which were not banned at the time of the study. The third study, which I found very interesting, comprised three different studies exploring the opportunity to provide gatekeeper training to vendors for suicide prevention. The first is a case control study identifying two risk factors for pesticide cell poisoning. That's alcohol intoxication at the time of purchase of pesticide and being a non-farmer. The second study is a stakeholder analysis. And the third is a pilot study exploring the feasibility and acceptability of vendor training intervention. That study showed that vendors are enthusiastic about the intervention and the number of suicide attempts may have been prevented in the pilot intervention trial. So all these presentations provided very interesting, important findings of pesticide strategies for the prevention of pesticide suicide. They also raised important questions. For example, why the ban on Paraguay did not show an early impact in Malaysia in contrast to the strong evidence for effect on reducing suicide in South Korea and, and Taiwan. And could there be a method of substitution occurring a few more years later after pesticide ban? And should there be further bans on pesticides with lower fatalities? And what will be the appropriate cutoff or threshold of case fatality to determine what pesticide should be banned? Are reliable data for fatality in human pesticide poisoning available? And are there other promising prevention strategies other than pesticide bans worth further development and investigation? So I start with asking Dr. Lashmi, why is the problem of pesticides so important? Please, could you share a little bit about your own experiences working with patients who sell poison using pesticides in India? Yes, it is a huge problem. In the last 10 years, though, the number of deaths by pesticides appears to have come down and the number of deaths by hanging has increased. But still a substantial proportion of people who die by suicide, particularly in rural areas, is by pesticide poisoning. We think it is a huge underestimate because hanging, it is difficult to uncount, whereas in pesticide poisoning, some of them could be hide under accidental poisoning. So we may not really know the true nature of the pesticide suicide. But even with the official estimates, we have anywhere between 20 to 30 percent, depending on the states, 20 to 30 percent of suicides. And if you take the suicide, which is about around 230,000, according to the WHO's estimate in India, or 200,000, that's about almost 40, 50,000 suicides by pesticide suicides. So it is a huge problem which needs to be addressed immediately. In terms of dealing with the patients who have consumed pesticide, the problem is in India, Till the 2017, attempted suicide was a punishable offense. So many of the people who have attempted suicide would not go to a government facility or other facilities where they would have police difficulties and things like that. So they would go to private practitioners and spend their life savings to, uh, you know, to, for the people who have taken pesticides. And many of them have gotten into debt lost your life savings because of this. So there is a huge financial implications also for the patients. In terms of the patients per se, in terms of treatment, at least in my state, we found that majority of them have been able to reach health facility within 30 minutes. But that's not the case in many other states where it has taken longer 
and many people have died because of that in terms of people using it only as an impulse i am not so sure that you can just classify that people who take pesticides are only impulsive suicides i wouldn't say so it is more the accessibility of the pesticides so closely i wouldn't say that it is only impulsive suicides who take pesticides the other major factor is we found that in our uh, in some of our studies we found that majority of them uh, have taken pesticide at the time of alcohol intoxication and even use alcohol mix pesticides with alcohol for ingestion so pesticide ingestion is a a huge public health tragedy in india it affects not only the individual both physically and emotionally but also the family in terms of financially and also in terms of stigma so this is a problem which needs to be addressed at the earliest as evidence has shown there is no doubt that banning highly hazardous pesticides is the most effective way of reducing access but the big challenge in a big country like india is the fact that how do we implement this because if it is a small country with defined borders you are able to do that but in a huge country like maybe india and i do not know what's the situation in china there are a lot of generic manufacturers okay they are not from companies or something so there is a lot of generic ma- manufacturers and there is a lot of black market for all these even if we ban it how do we implement this is a is a huge challenge and that's something which we need to focus on first is banning then how to implement those bans and to make it effective is another thing till such time that we are able to do all this there is always a scope for restricting access through a safer storage better education of vendors labeling providing immediate medical facility you know so it has to come as a we have to throw everything we have to reduce this at pesticide suicide and reduce yes yes i found that very fascinating comments and also in terms of the burden of pesticide suicide as well as strategies particularly in the context of india and then we turn to michael please could you also share your experiences about uh, your research and practice in sri lanka and also other settings thank you shushan thank you lakshmi for your fascinating comment so i first saw this problem in 2005 when i was a clinical medical student and i gone to a hospital ward in anrata for a huge hospital 2000 beds maybe 180 200% bed occupancy and what i saw in the wards was poison patient after poison patient after poison patient coming into the wards and it was clear there's a major problem that was stressing the healthcare system as well as killing patients and actually in 1995 was a very interesting year in sri lanka it was a year that the most toxic pesticides were being banned the metamidazole the monoclonal the class of who1a's and endosulfam was becoming more problematic when i returned a year later we used to hear this noise in the distance the kind of a knocking on the you'd hear this knocking in the distance and you'd see it getting closer and closer or going past you and that was the patient in state epilepticus because of endosulfam poisoning and so endosulfam was then banned in 1998 and faded away and i've really i've only seen one or two cases in the last few years so this is very dramatic to me and i realized at the time relatively few people in the world especially from a clinical toxicology perspective was working on it so where i differ from lakshmi so lakshmi works from a psychiatry background from a holistic approach about mental health clinical toxicologists tend to work from a, how can i stop this person dying so a harm minimization approach is very much our focus of trying to both initially working with the patient to stop this individual patient dying but then also trying to stop those patients coming into hospital 
Because what I quickly realized being in a hospital was how little I could actually do and how, how useless really working with his patients were. Because sometimes they come to hospital so ill, there was nothing we could do about it. So it became very important to me as a clinician to step back from the hospital, to go into the community, to go into the government, and to try to work on a public health perspective, to see if I could find ways of stopping these people dying. I mean, why is it important? As Lakshmi said, and you said yourself, it's a really key form of suicide worldwide. I tend to think in terms of self-harm, that people self-harm. And some of those people really wish to die because of the circumstances of their life. But other people are simply trying to communicate. Self-harm is about telling people how much, how angry I am, how hurt I am, how this person has harmed me. One of the ways of communicating that distress is to self-harm. And particularly commonly in the West, in the UK, in India, in Asia, is to take a poison. As some of my colleagues have pointed out, Tom Widge's work in Sri Lanka is fascinating. There's a cultural process of, I took a poison. And that, the communication throughout the village, it definitely causes stigma. And it, to some extent, in Sri Lanka, less the financial problem, but there's a stigma of self-harm. But whether that person dies or not is often very much not dependent on what they're wanting to do. No one sees them. They found, they're found several days later. Those people are often very high intent. But there are the other people who are younger, who are doing it impulsively, who are often young women. Now, in the, young, in the UK, young women hardly ever die because the poisons available we have here do not result in death. But we look at the Indian data, the Sri Lankan data, and the Chinese data, there are many deaths in young women. So pesticide poisoning is a gender issue. And where that self-poisoning in young people has been made safe by removing those highly hazardous pesticides and replacing with much less toxic pesticides, you see a dramatic and rapid fall in deaths in young women in particular in rural areas. And that's very clear from Sri Lanka and from China, and hopefully it will happen over the next five or 10 years in India. So by simply making self-harm safe, by removing these lethal compounds from households, you're allowing people to survive. And I think, you know, the comparison I think about of the 4-8, which was banned in 2018 in India, is a compound with a RAT oral LD50 of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. That is really, it's the most toxic pesticide ever used in agriculture. And that is the same toxicity as sarin nerve agents. So it's a little bit like coming to my village in Sri Lanka, going around the house and saying, here's a bottle of sarin. You need it for your agriculture. I want you to put this in your house and store it safely. And so my problem with misuse and safe storage is suggest that you can use these compounds safely. And, it, and the idea of misuse really tends to focus it on the user and says, you're dying or your daughter's dying because of how you misuse this compound. My view from a harm minimization perspective is it's not possible to use these compounds safely in these communities. They are too dangerous. We would never allow siren to be handed around. It would also be like in the UK, and you could imagine the suicide rate would rise because of those moments of stress. Suddenly something is there that's available for which you can harm yourself lethally with a 90% lethality with guns and 60% with paracord. So I think pesticide suicide is really important because it's very preventable. It's very common. It affects poor rural communities across the world and it affects young women in particular. So there are multiple reasons I believe that pesticide suicide stands out as being a problem which we can address. One interesting issue is one Lakshmi raised about the recent study showing hanging is going up in India while pesticide suicides are going down. 
What we don't know yet, and we haven't yet done the analysis, but it's very important to do, is where the pesticide suicides are falling in rural communities. And it's not talking about a state, it's talking about an individual community or districts. Is the hanging going up in that district or is hanging going up in the cities? So is there a discordance between where the pesticides are going down and the hanging is going up? Because if hangings are going up in the city and not in the villages, then it's not mean substitution. It's simply two separate phenomena going on. And I think it's really important to do that. But um, I do find pesticide suicides an absolutely key and important aspect of global mental health and suicide prevention. Yeah, that's fantastic. Personal experiences, also insights from those practices and transformed into prevention strategies. And you also uh, address the issue about uh, banning the potential and the challenges of banning uh, highly toxic pesticides, including parkour and other highly toxic pesticides. And so we return to Lashmi. You also comment about banning or restricting highly toxic pesticides, but you also mentioned the challenge in the context of India, such a large country with uh, such a large population. And you mentioned about other potential strategies like uh, uh, self-storage or community storage, and which you have done some very interesting study uh, before. Could you share? Yes, I, yeah. say, sir, I, I agree that banning is uh, fantastic. In fact, India banned 14 pesticides. And in the pipeline, actually, in 20, 2019, they had the Department of Agriculture and Farmers' Welfare had notified that, made a draft notification that they would ban another 21 pesticides. But unfortunately, that's being kind of blocked by the Department of Chemicals and Fertilizers who say that 40% of our exports will go away to other countries and we cannot afford to do that. So there is a lot of, what shall I say, interdepartmental, interministerial difficulties which is going on. And the other issue is also the fact that, you know, we have to go to the bureaucrats and the politicians. And for example, even in Tamil Nadu, we had a very, very capable person called Aris Ahmed, who was very keen on banning some of the pesticides. And he, he did a, he started with banning what we call as a cow dung powder, which is not used by farmers at all, but has been used extensively for dying by suicide in certain parts of Tamil Nadu. Suddenly, yesterday, he has been transferred out. So we have to start working with another person now. So there are challenges in implementing this thing for politically, financially, in terms of corporates, everything. So we have to keep working at it. And I believe that we have to do everything possible to reduce pesticide suicide. I entirely agree with Michael that this is something which can be reduced and we should throw everything we have at it to see what we can do. So in that context, while working on banning some of the pesticides in Tamil Nadu, we, we started working on a couple of other initiatives also. For example, one was using non-pesticide methods of controlling the pesticides, which we organically did in four villages in Telangana, in Kamam district, which is famous for pesticide suicides. So we identified four villages there and we actually enrolled some of the farmers' wives, the, where the farmers have died by suicide because of death. And they had uh, difficulty in, you know, sustenance and all that. So we formed a group of all these widowed middle-aged women who are suddenly left without a husband and a small farm and with the dead. So we worked with them. And in those four villages, they used no pesticide, no chemical pesticide was used. 
they use ch- cow dung paste chili garlic female pheromones and actually what has happened is that in the four years or five years following that their crop quality increased they came out of debt they formed a cooperative and found a neem seed crushing machine and those four villages the suicide rates came down at the same time we have to be aware that one of the biggest challenges in india is huge population we cannot afford to have food scarcity in our country that will be the last stage so we had discussion with one mr dr ms swaminathan who is a leading agricultural expert who started the green revolution in india and asked about the effects of using i mean uh, how about changing into completely an organic kind of a farming and he says that's not viable for india it cannot happen but we can definitely pitch in the argument that banning highly hazardous pesticide is not only to reduce suicide but it also to improve environment health you know other factors in fact kerala government banned uh, endosulfan not because they wanted to reduce suicides because what happened was in kerala they grew a lot of cashews and they sprayed endosulfan from the aerial root and so many children uh, had birth defects at that time so that was a proof which made them so so we have to uh, not only go in from the uh, suicide reduction because for the agricultural person or for the chemicals fertilized person we have to give a more holistic what shall i say approach to them so that they know that this is of value to reduce pesticide to reduce accident poisoning among children to improve the environment you know that's the kind of pitch which we have been uh, trying to do in regard to the central storage yes we have, we identified villages in a particular district in tamil nadu where they were growing flowers floriculture flowers you have to spray pesticide every 15 days so the consumption of pesticide side and some of the villages had a very high pesticide suicide rate also so i'm learning from what has happened in sri lanka we didn't want to have a storage box in a home which is actually more which has not been found to be affected so we thought we will do something where the community thinks this is important and the we can bring a little bit more more cohesion in the community so we, uh, this project was supported by the world health organization so we built like a bank locker lockers in these two villages and stored asked the uh, promoted the villages to store their pesticides in there and we found that see initially when we published the paper it was too short it was just a year and a half now it has gone on for 10 years in these 10 years these two villages there is not a single pesticide suicide when compared to the control villages or the neighboring villages so it brought the community together it brought the awareness about the issue of pesticide suicide in the community and they felt that they belong because we use the people from the village to be the store managers so they knew the family so if somebody was coming who was not a farmer somebody was coming in the non spraying time you know so they they were trained to identify provide support and we also had a health professional a medical doctor who they can go to and in case there has been an overdose and things like that so so this has been successful and nimh usa has funded us the spirit project which is a multi component uh, project in we are which we are doing in about uh, 54 villages in the 
Mesana district of Gujarat, and we have installed central storage in all the villages. And uh, there was also a village participation. The village had to give the place for us, and we will put the uh, lockers, and they will have to monitor it. You know, so it, it gave power to the villages, and we have started it, and it is going well. But it's still in the preliminary stages whether it has been effective in reducing suicide because in between COVID has happened, so we do not know. We have to. We have to really uh, think, but the uptake from the villages has been pretty good. That in terms of acceptability of this uh, thing is good, but we have also learned that we have to do a lot more work with the community for it to accept it more. When we are doing it in two villages, it was easy, but when you are doing it in 54 villages, in some villages, the uptake is extremely good. In some villages, the uptake is not great. So it depends on how much we are able to work. And what we have found is that the uptake is extremely high during the harvest season. Because in, during the crop planting season, when they need the pesticides, they find it extremely useful to have it in the village instead of going to the town all the time and buying pesticides. So it makes economic sense to them also. Yeah, thank you. Fascinating, fascinating comments and also our previous studies. You mentioned about the non-pesticide management strategy and community storage and your ongoing studies. And you also comment on about the, uh, the border implication for banning highly toxic uh, pesticides, not only to prevent suicide, but also to prevent uh, accidental poisonings. And then we turn to uh, Michael. Could you please also share a bit more about your other ongoing uh, studies, including those uh, presented in the conference, such as the gate, the, the gatekeeper or the vendor training, and also the, the lab box uh, study you have uh, previously published? Yeah, of course. So when I think about prevention strategies, I think in terms of the hierarchy of control, which was something that developed in the 50s, uh, probably by Haddon in the 1970s onwards, which talked about the most effective approach to prevent he talked initially about energy release and how you try to prevent, for example, radiation damage, et cetera. And he talked about, you know, you eliminate the hazard as being the most effective way. And if you can't eliminate it, you substitute it. And if you can't substitute it, you find ways of using it that makes it more effective. And then you have administrative controls. So actually, you know, there's engineering controls to sort of how you can use it. And then you've got administrative controls. You work with the community, how they may use the, the item. And then you'll lastly work with the individual. And so you can think about pesticide poisoning very similar in this way. I think for three basic levels. The first level is you work with the patients who's poisoned themselves. Can I stop that person dying? Clearly, it's very late. It's almost, second, it's almost secondary prevention in a way. But so some of the work I do over the years is trying to find better and more effective treatments for pesticide poisoned patients. Generally, they've been fairly unsuccessful. We've generally done big studies to show no benefit. We're currently doing a study in Bangladesh in four, hopefully soon, six hospitals, recruiting three and a half thousand patients to a new treatment to organophosphate and carbamate poisoning. So like Relaxmi says, we have to work at every single level to try to have a benefit. But fundamentally, that's the least effective level. Then we can work with communities. Can we use laws and regulations to change how communities use pesticides? So storage is one aspect of that. So the study we did in Sri Lanka was look if not if we stored these in the houses, because the last thing we wanted to do was bring these pesticides from the fields where most people stored their pesticides into the house. But we designed a box to go in the ground and that was actually put in the, in the home garden, so maybe 100 meters from the house, et cetera, which had a lock and a lid. 
It was designed by my, con my colleague Fleming Conradson in discussion with the villagers to find the best effective method. We then recruited 223,000 people in 53,000 households over three years to join the study. And then we followed them for three years. And actually it was remarkable, we found no effect at all on pesticide self-poisoning. We weren't looking at suicides because the numbers weren't big enough. But the rate of self-poisoning was pretty much the same between the two. And the actual numbers of death were slightly higher in the household that got the boxes. And even in the first six months is when you might expect it to be most, most useful. You, know, you, are, you get something new, you use it a lot. So in those first six months when those boxes were first used, there was absolutely no effect at all, which is quite remarkable in a way. It wasn't what we expected. And as Lakshmi was saying, it's quite difficult to get communities to behave in a certain way consistently. They have to believe themselves they want to do that. And so we were going around every six months. We were talking to farming organizations, but we weren't knocking on the door every day to say, are you using your box? Are all the pesticides in the box? Because that's simply not realistic in the real term. So, I mean, I think it would be great if community systems work. The problem I see with community systems from the studies in China, what we see in Sri Lanka, is that often they're in the center of the village and the patients, the, the farmers' fields are on the outside of the village. So you're forcing farmers to go into the village and then to go back out past the house, back out to the fields. Also, you need someone in that place to have the key to open the cupboard for the farmer. But the farmers in Sri Lanka often go out early morning before it gets hot and they spray just as it goes light. And so that means there has to be somebody there by 5.30 in the morning waiting in the community boxes to actually be available. And I think uh, Lakshmi's early study showed about a 25% uptake. I mean, hopefully that's increased over time. That's become much more effective. So some communities will do that. And it may be one way that works. But while it's probably better than working with the patients themselves, working with the communities that way, I think it's, it's still not as effective as the bands. The thing about vendors is, so we've been working with vendors because the work of my colleague Manjula Vikramasinghe for the last, sorry, Vira Singer for the last um, 10, 15 years. Is because they have a real interest in not selling a pesticide to someone who then drinks it around the corner. Because if that person drinks it, often that seller gets criticized. And there's a lot of community stress based around that shop. Therefore, while their predominant ambition is to sell and make money, they also have some reason to be quite happy not to sell it to someone who drinks it. So therefore, we're working with a community who actually do see this as a problem for themselves. Problem on an individual level, the person often says, well, it's actually not my family or my daughter's going to drink the pesticide. It's that family down the road, the one that's a bit unstable. There's actually a denial that this is a problem within their own family at this kind of public health level. While with the vendors, they do see it as their own problem and therefore are happy to work with us. So we're now doing a study of 2.4 million people across uh, six districts of Sri Lanka. We're working with something like 550 pesticide shops, training them in a step wedge design to, to work to identify people who are drunk or agitated who are not farmers who they shouldn't sell pesticide to they'll say bring someone else send someone else to buy the pesticide or come back tomorrow and maybe that will work the issue with that is that you're only working with about 20 percent of self-poisoning events in 80 percent of the cases in most studies the pesticides available at home only in 20 percent of the time do they go out and buy it so therefore you're working with quite a small number of the people who are self-harming and actually in our study at the moment, it's about 16%. It's slightly higher in those who die. So what it looks like is people who actually go out and who have a higher intent and therefore a higher likelihood of dying, they do go to shops to buy it. So there's a slightly different population. So it will be wonderful if this has some effect. 
I do think it's, we'll be fortunate if it has a big effect. It may have a small effect, and clearly it's worthwhile doing in general. But I don't think it's going to answer pesticide suicide. What will answer that is bans. If you look at the hierarchy of control, elimination is going to be the most effective way, or substitution. So in Japan in 1986, the government made a decision to stop making available Paracort SL20, the high concentrated liquid format of Paracort. This has been the cause of a massive increasing number of deaths across Japanese society as a result of changing the formulation to a lower concentration product with 50% of it a lower concentration compound. The suicides have fallen massively in Japan over the last 20 years from something like two and a half thousand down to something like 150. So a 90% reduction in suicides, mostly due to a reduced use of that compound. And Sri Lanka has shown dramatically that you can reduce, remove these pesticides from agricultural use. The point is you're not removing all pesticides. You're simply focusing on the few pesticides that cause the vast majority of the problems. So you're, you're, you're allowing industry and you're allowing shopkeepers to sell many other different products. You're simply removing the ones which are killing people and causing major environmental problems or causing occupational problems. And if you spend time talking with the companies, with the vendors, to say there are alternatives which you really need to move to, that can be accepted. Now that has happened in Sri Lanka. And interestingly in India, endosulfan was banned in 2011. There are now very, very few deaths from endosulfan in China, in India. And China, though it's a massive country as well, has reduced its case, its numbers of deaths from 180,000 in say around 1995 to about 50,000 or less today. And that's partly by removing these highly hazardous pesticides. So it is possible in big countries to do this. And actually, elimination is the best way because you can simply go to this generic company and say, you can no longer make 4-H. You can make 15 other pesticides, which are much less toxic and less hazardous, but you cannot make 4-H anymore. And by working at the factory level, because there's only a limited number of factories that can make these compounds, you sh should be able to implement it. And that's exactly what China has done and what India can do if the government decision goes ahead in that way. There's also a few other things. So, I mean, um, alcohol is a really interesting point. If we could reduce alcohol use in stressed communities, there will be less self-harm for sure. And we know that men drink alcohol on many occasions before they self-harm. So they drink, they lose inhibitions, they self-harm in their moments of melancholy. The interesting point about that is that they drink more pesticide when they're drunk, presumably because they lose frontal lobe control, they become less inhibited, and they just drink bigger volumes. But quite clearly, we showed in Sri Lanka with dimethylate that by being drunk, people drank more pesticide and had a much higher risk of death. So alcohol control is a key point. And finally, to talk about agricultural yield, the big worry worldwide is if you ban pesticides, there will be famine, there will be food insecurity. And clearly Sri Lanka has shown in the last few months that if you ban pesticides overnight, and more importantly actually in Sri Lanka, it was banning chemical fertilizers overnight and not allowing years of preparation, then you do get agricultural problems. Andhra Pradesh at the moment in India is moving to community management. It's trying to move completely organic for the whole state for a 50 million population, 6 million farmers. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with that. But what we expect is, as Lakshmi showed in her small studies in those villages, less community stress, more engagement, better nutrition, fewer deaths. So it should be possible, but it will be difficult and it must be thought through and it must be carefully done. It cannot be switched on and off overnight. But where that's been done, looking at data from Bangladesh, from Taiwan, from Sri Lanka, 
from India, we've seen no evidence of any reduction in agricultural yield by moving by changing from highly hazardous pesticides to other pesticides or to non-pesticide, non-chemical form of agricultural and crop protection. So I don't think there's any evidence that's going to cause problems. Thank you, Michael. Such fantastic, very comprehensive comments on the issue of pesticide suicide prevention and also pointing to the future directions. So before we conclude, Lashmi, would you like to share a bit about your your suggestions about the way forward? Maybe some brief comments about what's the priorities in terms of pesticide suicide prevention. Yes, I agree. The priority is banning. I'm saying it has to go simultaneously with everything. Again, I, I would like to reiterate that we have to do everything that is possible. See, unfortunately, what is happening in my Sri Lanka is affecting India also. Because even in talks we had last week with the chief secretary about banning of pesticides, he said, we, we don't want Tamil Nadu to become another Sri Lanka. They don't understand the difference between fertilizers and pesticides, first of all, even the bureaucrats. Okay, So it takes time, it takes effort. We have to work with the agricultural people. We have to work with policymakers. We have to work with the communities. We have to work with everybody. And when everybody is convinced, then it is good. And as I said, the biggest problem is in implementing it. Michael said about Sri Lanka, China. The fact is more than they, the, they didn't ban so many pesticides. The fact was 25% of uh, rural people migrated to urban areas, so they were less exposed to pesticides. So we cannot say that it is only because of banning that China has reduced. The problem is, as I said, in India, it's a big country with different, different pesticide used in different states. For example, the pesticide suicide which is used in the north of India is aluminum phosphate, which is very fatal. In south of India, it is monocrotophos. So I agree with Michael saying that we should target the pesticide which causes the major problem and address it first so that then we can show that these suicides are reduced, which will enable us to broaden the number of pesticides which can be banned so that the administration is not worried about uh, productivity or farmers' uh, difficulties or whatever the issue is. But as it is going on, I believe that whatever happens the there will be some amount of pesticides, okay, which may not be fatal, okay, some less hazardous pesticides, so substitution, let's assume that we substitute and encourage the farmers to use less hazardous, less problematic, less uh, uh, pesticides, which are less fatal, you know, with, but even then, have, having made an attempt there, the amount of money the family has to spend to recover, resuscitate, and the hospitalization is huge for a poor farmer. Okay, so we have to educate the farmers about safer storage, safer disposal, safer limiting access. I think that is not contrary to banning, but it is an add-on to the ban. So that, you know, the, everybody is aware that these pesticides can cause problems in all spheres. So that, that's my understanding that I do agree that banning is the most effective. But while we are doing it, we have to do a lot of other things also and make it acceptable to the policymakers, the farmers, and the community. And we do have to work whatever, even, even if we assume that uh, this less hazardous pesticide is used, but if it is used for an overdose, then there is hospitalization, there is costs involved, there is stigma involved. So we have to see, we have to work at the community level also, is what I think. 
Yeah, yeah, fantastic, Michael. And your comments about future priority in terms of precise suicide? I agree completely with Lakshmi that it's really the implementation. It's about trying to think, make things work, trying to reassure policymakers that there are agricultural options to replace these highly hazardous pesticides. Clearly, there are people worldwide who believe that we should be moving completely away from chemical pesticides, and I'm sure that is a very sensible thing in terms of biodiversity, in terms of the environment, etc. But in terms of pesticide suicides, focusing on that one issue. We're talking about five, ten, twenty pesticides of the 500 that are available. So really, you're not talking about people say you, know, you can't ban pesticides. Well, you can ban pesticides. You can ban 50, 100, 200 without causing any problems. There are lots and lots of pesticides and also non-chemical methods out there. So we're actually working at that kind of level and trying to understand the alternative options. That the fact you can remove paraquat without any effect on agriculture is an important piece of information. So it's actually providing information to policymakers to allow them to make informed decisions which are beneficial for their region or their country. So I think research is slightly less important at the moment. The policy work I think is really important. I do think, however, that one of the problems we got, which is what actually again referred to before, about how long it takes to get to effective treatment. One study I'm trying to do over the next few years is putting treatment into villages, putting atropine. Auto injectors, which the military use for a chemical nerve attack, and putting those in the villages and see can villages use them? Are they happy with it? Do they think it's a good thing to do? And see if that's the way of getting sure that the people, when they're put in a three-wheeler tuk-tuk or their bajaj, and they're sent to the hospital, they have treatment on board for that first half hour to an hour before they get to the hospital. But also the other point is that as we move away from the highly hazardous pesticides, healthcare becomes much much cheaper. When we did a cost analysis of healthcare for poisoned patients in Sri Lanka, the number one cost is intensive care. But if you've taken chlorpholazarone, or you've taken a compound which is a chitin inhibitor, or a herbicide or a fungicide which does not cause any human toxicity, you don't require ICU. You don't become ill. It doesn't remove the stigma. It doesn't remove the issue about going to hospital, but it does reduce massively the costs. That comes down by 90% or 95% if you're not taking these highly hazardous pesticides. So even on a healthcare system approach, you will markedly reduce costs by moving away from these compounds that cause so much harm to humans and should never ever have been allowed into these agricultural communities of Asia. Initially, in 1967, there was an agricultural committee meeting in India. Where they reviewed the issue of these highly hazardous pesticides, and even at that time they realised how much of a problem was going to be coming up. They could see it happening, and you could see the distress on this committee that they could see that 4-H-phosphamidon and monocrotophos was going to cause major, major problems in these communities. Unfortunately, at that time they didn't find alternatives which were less toxic. We have we have azimethyphos now, which is a it's a class three pesticide. You can drink that and go for a run. You know, some of these pesticides are frankly non-toxic for humans, but they're toxic for insects. We need to work out an agricultural practice how to do that. And Paul Jepson has done some beautiful work in Northern California, looking at the 800 pesticides that are available and narrowing the ones we should be using down to about 50 for every single reason: for bees, for biodiversity, for the environment, for human health. We don't need the 800 pesticides, and particularly, we don't need the acutely toxic HHPs. They have to go. Thank you. That's really inspiring, and this、uh, point to huge 
opportunities for prevention of pesticide suicide. And I believe that this would also have implications for other restricting other lethal methods for suicide. So thank you. Thank you, Lashmi and Michael, so much for your very stimulating and insightful sharing around the important issue of pesticide suicide and its prevention. And for those of you who have registered with the ISP Asian Pacific Regional Conference, you can access the recordings of these presentations by logging into the virtual platform. The recordings will remain available on the platform until August 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Thank and you, for your, Thank you, uh, Lashmi and Michael, for thank your you, wonderful Michael. sharing. Thanks, Lashmi. Love to talk to you. Thank you, Shusen, for putting it all together. I mean, thank you, you did a beautiful job. So thank congratulations. You, Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for all the background work. Thank you. And thank you for all who listen to this podcast.